Titus O'Reilly here, once again annoying you with our shameless plug for Bazaar plus our membership program, More Mick and Me. Simply go to the link in the show notes. It's Sports Bazaar. Welcome aboard, everyone. Anyone isn't happy, we call it all off immediately. The hunt for the weirdest. There you go. Can you put out a fact sheet with this? <laughs> Slide my mind. I don't. I can't <laughs> keep up. Strangers. Catastrophic, amazing, bizarre. Multiple layers of stupidity coming together. What could go wrong? Most unbelievable. It's like a Coen Brothers movie. Stories to ever occur. They're only going to get weirder from here. Get comfy, everyone. Some good, some bad. And some just bizarre, which we love. In the world of sport. How many chimneys could you do in a day? I've researched the tool. To France, not chimney. Sports bizarre. Right, police are called in. <laughs> For the players, Dennis Rodman is telling you to calm down. Testicle soup. Can I just stop you for a second? Don't act like you've never done this. I feel like once again we've strayed away from what I've researched. It's time for the leaders of the hunt. An old couple who've got our spark back. (laughs) It's Titus O'Reilly and Mick Malloy. Welcome to the latest edition of Sports Bazaar with myself, Mick Malloy. And as always, doing the heavy lifting. It's Titus O'Reilly. Titus, what do you bring to the table? Give me a sport. Well, this is the wonderful sport of snooker. I'm surprised we <laughs> haven't gone here earlier. It's taken too long. When it comes to indoor sports, this is one of the all-time greats. Oh, easily. Everyone can identify with it in some form or another, whether you're your local pub champion <laughs> or whether you're Walter Lindrum. Yeah. You knew Charlton, didn't you? You filmed oh, something with him once. So for anyone unfamiliar with my history, we did a show called The Late Show and I filmed a game of billiards with Eddie Charlton. Eddie Charlton, and that's the, right. the premise was we were playing pub rules, which means you had a schooner on the side. That's right. If you used the spider, which we called the poop stick. <laughs> He's using the poop stick. <laughs> and, of course, I beat Eddie. Who's one of the greats. Absolutely. And I beat Eddie without putting a ball. So there's the scene where Eddie Charlton runs around the pool table with his pants around his ankles. And what a great sport <laughs> he was to do that. This is someone who would have played with him. They were going to the year, I might do the year of first. You're not familiar with snooker, which a lot of people aren't. In the UK, in the 70s and 80s, right. it was huge. Absolutely They're massive. Rock stars. rock stars. So it's hard to imagine a lot of people in a lot of countries that go, really, is it that big? But the BBC, when they moved to colour, this is true, oh, wow. they went, what's a show we can put on that shows off the colour TV and why you would buy a colour TV over black and white? And they came up with, well, snooker because you've got all the different colour balls. Ball, yeah. That was the reason. They invented a show called Pop Black. It was legendary. On every, legendary on every week. They used to get like 15 million plus watching us. Huge. These guys, everyone knew, 70s and 80s were massive. Everyone wanted to be a snooker player. They were in some ways bigger than soccer players. So it's like soccer players in England are now. Yes. It was massive. And into this world falls a guy by the name of Jimmy White. The yep. whirlwind was his nickname. And he goes on to be. They have nicknames like They all have like nicknames. Yeah, and there's the hurricane, the hurricane and Alex Higgins was the hurricane and. Another guy was nickname was Dustbin because his dad was a garbage man. So it was yeah. all those ones, right? So Jimmy is born James Warren Wright, the 2nd of May, 1962, in Tooting, which is in London. Okay. And he comes from a working class background in a big family, quite a lot of kids. Is that typical of your billiards player of the era? Or? A lot of them are working class, but it's also got an upper class thing. It was invented in India by the British in, while they were in India as a game to play. Had a bit of spare time on their a bit hands. bit of spare time, but, you know, when you're a bit tired from oppressing the natives. <laughs> taking all their jewels. <laughs> yeah. What else are you going to do? Yeah, you need to, you know, have a GNT and play some snooker. <laughs> So his dad's works incredibly hard yep. and is not around much because he's working so much, but loves his kids. And every Friday, he goes to his favorite pub, the Duke of Devonshire, and he goes down there and sees all his mates. He takes Jimmy along sometimes, and Jimmy comes to love this because this is time with dad. Yeah, absolutely. And he loves the characters in the pub, and, you know, they all sort of take him under his wing. They know his dad. He's like a grommet in surfing too. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's, he's around it, right? And so he loves it. And this is where he sees his first pool table. And he says he's kind of just mesmerised at these yeah. characters playing pool and chatting and everything. Eventually, he's nine years old at this stage, right? So he's pretty young. They say, well, why don't you have a go? Why don't you crack. play, right? He said he starts off playing and he doesn't know the rules. He doesn't never held a cue before. He gets into it and they start letting him win for fun, like let the kid <laughs> win, right? So he wins a few. Then over a few months, he starts to get better and then he starts beating them. 
And so they start <laughs> not letting him win and trying to beat him. And before long in this pub, he's, he's nine years old and well, he beats everyone. It's incredible. People are coming to play him. He's like a young Tiger Woods. Yeah, he is, exactly. He's just an absolute natural from almost day one. So at this point, he's beating everyone who challenges him. He's going to school and about the age of 11, he goes, I don't want to go to school. So he just stops going. Yeah, I'm just going to tell you off the bat, that's bad parenting. If, <laughs> yeah. you, if you're letting your kid at the age of 11 not go to school so he can go down to the pub and play pool. Well, I don't think they knew what he was doing, right? <laughs> That's even worse parenting. I think the schools didn't care that much. And I think, you know, it's a working class area. A lot of kids are wagging. There's parents are off at work. He's got lots of other brothers and sisters. I think people aren't paying a lot of attention to him in a way. (laughs) He's slipping through. Yeah, the parents love him and stuff and care for him and stuff. It's not like today where it's like the minute you don't go to school, there's an app pinging in the parent's pocket, right? Yeah, yeah. Ankle bracelet goes off. Yeah. So he's hanging around the city. He's going to museums and hanging out in there. He's going to the movies, doing whatever. He's having the run of it. And then one day it's pouring with rain and so he and a mate of his, they decide to duck into a snooker hall called Zans. It's owned by a guy called um, Dan Zanselli and Zans is just this rough as guts pool hall, right? Like, you know, the type. so so rough that there's criminals, there's gangsters, there's gamblers, there's, you know, it's all these men who are just all the, you know, the shady side of life. Yeah, real, like, real tough guys. So... Um, he says at Christmas, the place was like a market stall. He said there's the first four tables of snooker in the club are piled high around Christmas with stolen goods. <laughs> I know this time. <laughs> so it's, always, it's got, yeah, he said yeah, there'd be yeah. tellies, irons, sure. vacuum cleaners. He says like and people would just come in and they'd just buy their, like all a, their Christmas presents. from a game yeah. show. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> exactly. So, and he's 11. Yeah. Hanging out all day in this place playing snooker. It says something about the place where no one cares at 11-year-old. Fantastic. And it's licensed, so they're all drinking and stuff and, you right. know, no one cares that he's doing it, right? He says there's just an absolute simmering violence to the joint too. Yeah. One of the guys who did security there was called Mad Ronnie Fryer. So not only the billiards players but also the security guys? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This guy, Mad Ronnie Fry, would come in and look around a few times a day, make sure no one was getting out of hand, and just him walking and looking around was enough. Was enough. Everyone went there. One time, Jimmy's 12 by this point, Mad Ronnie Fryer runs in being chased by the police and a police dog, <laughs> and he kills the police dog Mad Ronnie. with his bare hands, and this happens right in front of Jimmy. Jimmy loves the joint. <laughs> he just thinks yeah. this is... Don't let him near Crofts. Exactly. Jimmy says it kicked off all the time and he'd just grab his cue and stand on the wall and Uh, no one would touch him. He'd let the heavies all sort of out, right? That is fantastic. Can I tell you my billiard story? Can I just say before you say this story, I knew you'd have a story at this point. (laughs) I just, we're reading this, I was like, this guy and Mick would have been friends as kids. So my first job out of school was working at the Pier Hotel in Frankston, a very rough area. Just one corner, four pubs. So I used to work in the public bar, which was fairly rough. My first day of work, the police walked in, and as they walked in, all I heard was this metallic clanking. And when I went around to get the glasses, everyone had emptied their pockets and there was nunchucks and knives <laughs> and stuff all over the joint. <laughs> yeah. The thing was, when I worked on a Saturday, security didn't come on till four. Now, I'm in the public bar and there's two pool tables. Anyone who knows these bars knows if there's ever trouble, that's where that's it's coming the, yeah, from. Yeah. So there's a group of locals newly out of prison, who are playing pool. and then How old are you at this point? I'm just 18, so it's my first job. A lot of islanders come down from another pub called the Sundowner, or as we used to call it, the Gundowner. (laughs) So they come in. These are Pacific Islanders, right? Yes, and big ones. And so I'm going, this is going to kick off. So you've got ex-crims. You've got a group of Pacific Islanders. No security. No security and a pool table. table. (laughs) So it's like if you were writing down a recipe for violence. It's just a loaded deck. (laughs) It's a perfect storm. Yeah. Here's the phrase you're looking for. So I go, this is not good. So I go next door to get the manager who's on, who is a wonderful guy, a short guy, Irish guy called Sean McCacky. Yeah. I said, Sean, you want to come in here? There's going to be trouble. Sean had seen a few things, I imagine. Sean has been around the block once or twice. Affable, lovely, small guy. He comes in and I go, this is about to kick off. He goes, I'll go sort this. So he wanders over to the pool tables and I see him talking to the locals and then talking to the Islanders. And as he's talking to the Islanders, this is a move I've never seen before. He makes out like he's about to scratch his ear 
and he whips off his hairpiece and chucks it in the face of the Islander. <laughs> and then the Islander is so surprised, he doesn't know what's happened. And Macaque, rain of blows comes down from Sean Macaque. <laughs> and the whole thing is sorted. So he just right? takes out like the leader or something, he just basically. Takes out the leader, but he's throwing a wig at he him. He removed his hairpiece and threw it in his face. <laughs> You know, like if you uh, like in the Indian movies where you'd kick sand in someone's face. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. The total shock and surprise of being hit in the face with a hairpiece. <laughs> I've never seen it before. With a toupee. And it was the single smartest move I've ever seen. Jesus. So. Well, this is what it was like. It was exactly that kind of – so you know the sort of um, – I know the environment. But at the same time, he's 12 and he's getting really good Like because he's – Instead of going to school, yeah, sure. he's going to Zans every day and playing snooker from <laughs> dawn to dusk to the point where his mum would sometimes send someone down there and go, get Jimmy out of the pool hall, bring him home. And he'd come home, eat dinner and go, all right, I better go to bed. Out the window. Out the window, back at Zans, playing all night. He said oh, he becomes addicted to snooker. Yeah. Like addicted, it's all he thinks about. He sleeps for the pool. Kid. Yeah, but he's getting really good. So suddenly these grown tough blokes, yeah. ex-prisoners and all this, and Grimm's, they all start saying, I'll play you for money. He's 12 years old. He's beating him because he's better. He's just a absolute wonder kid. Most kids these days, you've got a paper round. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, doing odd jobs for the neighbours. Yeah. Nah. So he's so good that he actually goes, his next door neighbour, who's a mate of his, a kid his age, has a grandmother who he knows. And he goes around the grandmother's house regularly and says her name was Bet, funnily enough. And he'd say, Bet, lend me a tenner. You know, give me 10 pounds. <laughs> And she would do reluctantly, and he'd take it and go down to Zans. That's his, his loan shop. And that would be yeah, that would be his right, stake his money. Kid. And then he'd come back two hours later to Bet's house with six hundred pounds. <laughs> he'd turn the ten into six hundred pounds. And a little something for Bet. He said he'd give the her money back. He goes, "See, I just said it was a loan." And then he'd buy her some drinks. <laughs> and then he'd leave the stash with her. Of the rest of the money, and then he'd go and get that before he headed down to Zans to play. I love it. By the time he's 13, he meets a guy at Zans called Tony Mio, who's three years older than him and goes on to become a very good yes. professional snooker player. They become thick as thieves because they're the two younger guys. Yeah. Do you think these days, if you're a kid and you walk into a pool hall at 11, 12, they're not letting you just stay there all day? No, the cops are cool. Anyway, a guy called Bob Davis approaches them. His nickname is Dodgy Bob. <laughs> <laughs> It's like out of a Dickens thing, right? Todgy Bob is not a great nickname. Yeah. He comes up to Jimmy, who's 13, Tony, who's 16, and says, listen up, you two. I've been watching you and you're very, very good. I'm semi-retired and I've got a black cab. He's a black cab driver. Yes. He said, I can drive you anywhere you want to go in the country. I'll put up the money, the stake, and we could all go win some cash. So I'll drive you around pool holes. We'll challenge people. I'll put up the money and well, with we'll split Bob. the winners. So. He goes, I'll give you 10% of any winnings. <laughs> Hence the dodgy. moniker. They it's a flat no, dodgy. They say yes. Oh they just God. cared about playing yeah. snooker. They weren't that wise to it. And they're like, this is great. So they start doing that. And they're driving all over England and winning money. He says, by the time Jimmy's 15, he had 10,000 pounds saved up. Now, this is while he's spending it in the yeah. 70s, while he's spending it like a madman. Yeah. So he says from the earliest day, he would spend it like nothing else. They would buy cigarettes. He was getting into drinking booze. He loves screwdrivers. Okay, this is a slippery slope. <laughs> so he's 13. He's playing pool for money, hustling pool all around the country, Genius. drinking, being driven around in a black cab by a guy called Dodgy Bob. <laughs> <laughs> and he's making money hand over fist I while spending it. it like nothing else. He says it became so easy for him to make money playing pool that one day he said to his dad, Dad, please lend me some money, anything, a fiver will do. His dad said, all right. Got his wallet out and he only had 10 pounds on him. So he goes, take the 10 pounds. Took it and ran down to Zans and three hours later comes back. And he says, I've got something for you. And he says, I'll never forget the look on Dad's face as I pulled note after note out of my pockets. I turned the 10 bob note into 800 pounds. In three hours, and his dad was just like, the old man's probably the old man's, that for the first quarter. It wasn't all fun. One time they're in a nightclub in London. He's still <laughs> like 13, right? And him and Tony Mio and a guy called Flash Bob. So we got Flash Bob and Dodgy, Dodgy Bob. Bob. You're right. And they're playing a guy in nine ball pool at a nightclub, and there's all the music going and everything, right? 
And they winning heaps of money. He said they were up to about three thousand pounds <laughs> that were uh, they'd taken from this guy. Put his hand in his coat really quickly, like he was grabbing something. And he went to pull something out, and they all got freeze. And the bouncer had seen him do this and whacked him from behind, knocked him down, this knocked the, the guy out. Who was trying? Who to... was reaching for his pocket? Yeah. That they were taking all the money off. And as he went to the floor, that a gun flew out of his coat. That's what he was reaching for. Oh, so he was going to pull a gun on a thirteen-year-old. <laughs> This is who he's mixing with, guys with guns and... And we've got to understand, too, this is before you could go from town to town and no one would know. There was There's no, no internet, social media, no. Nah. up the phone going, hey, watch out for these kids. No mobile kids. phones, nothing, yeah. yeah. So they would, each town would see these two kids walk into a pub yep. and say, we're going to beat you at pool. Yep. Like it was we'll, the first time. Yep, they would just go <laughs> everywhere and stuff. Yeah. So this is the world he's seeing, all right? He's got money coming in like crazy. He's drinking, he's smoking. No one cares what he gets up yeah. to. Finally, by the time he's at high school and he's 13, he achieves what's called a century break. So in snooker, for those that don't know, you pot a certain amount of balls and you keep going until you miss yes. and they've all got points, Attached different colours yeah. and points. And so a century break is you rack up 100 points. Very hard to yes. do. You've got to be a really good player. You've got to knock stuff up and keep the streak going. Yeah. And he achieves this at 13 and it's a huge thing even at right. that age. Like even the professionals count their century breaks. It's you know, well, When did he do this? At the local pool hall at Zans. It's so amazing that the national press cover it you know, that's how rare it is, yeah. right? Like he's done an amazing thing. Yes. It's like, you know, shooting a hole in one or, hole in one or something. But, you know, it's even more so than good. that because it's less it's fluky. Talent, it's, talent you've really got to. It's like Tiger Woods coming up and he's like, you know, he was 13 and almost beat John Daly, right? It's like that kind of level of. John Daly would pull a gun on him. <laughs> <laughs> His headmaster, Mr. Beatty, he's now at high school. He opened up the paper and there's Jimmy smiling. It's in all the tabloids. It's on all the national media yes. saying this young 13-year-old's done a century break in snooker. And snooker's a massive sport at the time. So Incredible. it's huge coverage. And Mr. Beatty's going, this kid never comes to school. <laughs> this is like the most I've seen him this year, right? Yes. He's not happy because he's figured out where he's been the whole time. Yeah. And so he rings around and gets onto his mum and letters get sent home, finally gets onto Jimmy and his mum and his dad. And he comes and meets with them as the headmaster and sits him down and goes, look, Jimmy hasn't been showing up for months. But he has a real talent for this snooker, so I'll do you a deal. This is the headmaster of the school. If he comes What's to his name? Dodgy teacher. Dodgy, there we go. Everyone's on the group. Jim hasn't been showing up for months, but he's a real talent for this snooker, so I'll do you a deal. If he comes into school in the morning, then I'll give him the afternoon off to play snooker. <laughs> It's a different world, it's the 80s. Gold. People who are alive now don't get how the 80s was a different planet. Like it was it's a great time. <laughs> they just people just didn't care. So he suddenly on the national stage is this one yep. kid coming up. He's sanctioned by the school to have afternoons <laughs> off to go play snooker. Even his parents are like, okay, well, yeah. you, that's fine. So he's got himself out of half of school. Yeah. Not that he was going. I think going half is better than going not at all in the yeah. headmaster's month. We know that's not his future. At this point of 14, a girl approaches him. She's 15 and asks for his autograph. He thinks she's joking, but she's is like, I've seen you. I've seen, yeah, he is. He's, I've seen you in the papers. Her name's Maureen Mockler. And they hook up. And by the time they're 18, they're married. You know, well so done. fast. He's so, going to retire at 20, this bloke. He's yeah. done every, all the big ones all the big already up. out of the way. So he's with Maureen. We're going to get back to Maureen because Maureen plays a big part for yeah. the rest of this story. Can't wait. He and Tony Mio, he's made at the snook hall, they're getting better and better and they start to drift away from Dodgy Bob because yeah. they start to get so good that they end up playing in the local, the Harrow and District Snooker and Billiards League. So they're suddenly playing in that. And they've worked out they can do better than 10%. They don't need Dodgy Bob anymore. They're a bit older and they yeah. can get around themselves. And um, he wins the Inter-Counties Championship. Yep. So he's the youngest to do that. He becomes the under-16s national champion. Mm -hmm. So suddenly he's like really like yeah. a name in snooker coming He has coming full up. attention. He puts notices in magazines challenging people to come and play him <laughs> at the Pot Black Snooker oh, Club in Battersea that. Rise. So him and Tony, they put ads in the paper because this is before the internet and everything, yeah. right? So he just come puts, one, come like all. in the classifieds, yep, we'll come and it's play. It's like the boxes he used to have to advertise. Yep. Yep. The... He says contenders flock from all over trying to win the 500 pounds a match that was the stake. Does he put up the stake? Yeah, by this point he's got money like crazy because if he wants money, he walks into a pool hall and yeah. goes, I'll play anyone for money. And snooker, snooker and gambling and drinking all go together perfectly. Sure. So he says any night he can walk in and make five grand there and then. He says, we never lost ever when people were coming and answering these ads. He said it was like walking into the lion's den 
for these guys. <laughs> so grown men are coming in to play yeah. and they're just wiping they're them. Leaving, like, yeah. Then in 1979, he enters and wins the England Amateur Championship. So it's this huge thing. He's 16 years and 11 months and he's the amateur champion of England. Of England. And that's not capped at an age thing. That's no. it. You can be 30 and enter that. He said, to be honest, it barely even registered with me. I had no idea it was a big deal or that important. When you spend most of your life getting chased out of clubs up and down the country and transported around in an old black cab, going to an important tournament and winning was no problem at all. <laughs> <laughs> so he's six, he's not even 17, he's lived a life, yeah, right? Like yeah. it's the, his play style is really gelled by this point and this is what also makes him the most popular snooker player. He's soon about to become the most popular one in the world and in England because he plays fast. So the balls yeah. have barely settled. Like he'll take a he's, shot, the balls, and he's already sized up the next shot and taking it. So he's exciting. He takes risky it. shots. Others play it safe and they talk about protecting the next ball yes. and all that. And if you go on YouTube and look at his shots, he can spin the cue ball like crazy. It's he's like, not there for a haircut. He's, yeah, he's, yeah. He is fast, risky, adventurous. because the engine's running and they've got to get to the next <laughs> yeah, the, the, I've, got, I've got three more. Well, he says tonight. that. He says, the more frames I could fit in, the more money I made. So when he yeah. was playing growing up, it was like play fast, you make more money, right? Like if it's over in 10 minutes, you're paid, right? How like, intimidating. Yeah. He's also incredibly honest and fair on the pool table. So if he makes a mistake and the ref doesn't notice it, because his little one's up. like accidentally touching a ball or, you know, hitting the cue ball first or something, he will say, no, nah, I did this and own up. He does this his whole career and the fans just love him for it because they see him as – a bit of a wild guy, but fast, yeah. exciting, and fair. So he's got everything you could want. Yeah. After he wins the English Amateur Championship, he gets sent out, but would you want to try and qualify for the World Amateur Championships? They're going to be held in Hobart. England would be the best. Yeah, yeah, they're the best. But at this point, like Hong Kong was really big. Australia were good. Yeah. Like, they, you know, it's pretty popular sure. in the Commonwealth countries sort of thing. Gotcha. But England, Scotland, Ireland, they're all the places where everyone's like yeah. the home of it. They have to qualify in Wales first. So he goes up there. He arrives on the train and he meets a guy called Joe O'Boy, who's the amateur title holder for the world. And so he's the England amateur champion. This guy's the world. And they start chatting and they start having a drink. And he thinks he's not playing that night. Jimmy <laughs> doesn't. So three hours in, they've been drinking and suddenly the coach says to him, who's the team manager, a guy called Bill Cottier, who just doesn't take like Jimmy particularly yeah. from day one. Says, you're up. And he's like, what? I didn't think I was playing tonight. And he goes, well, it's changed. You're playing. And he's absolutely blackout drunk almost, right? So <laughs> he manages to fashion a break of 59, which is not bad but not great. Okay. And then falls down drunk on the floor <laughs> and then has to pull himself up using the pocket. <laughs> the, <laughs> the netting, the netting the on the pocket of the snooker table and tries to play on. Collapse again and lays in a catatonic state on the floor. England lose the match and oh, Wales dear. win, right? Because it's and he thinks, well, this isn't good. And Bill Cottier, the manager, is furious and says to Jimmy, "You're not going to Tasmania. That's it. You've ruined yeah. it. You're not going to the World Championships." Okay. Jimmy's furious and tells him to f off, and then stumbles back drunk to his chalet. They're all staying at these chalets, yes. and he says to his mates who are all hanging out in the chalet with him, "I'm not going to Tasmania." Bill Cottier said, "I can't do it." And he says to them, I'm definitely going to Tasmania. No one's stopping me. No chance. And then he staggers off and runs a bath, right? And they all go and see <laughs> what the hell's gone into Jimmy, right? He's got a manager at this point. I won't go into each of the managers because he goes through them like every yeah. – it's like Spinal Tap drummers, right? There's a new one every week. So he hears about this. So he quickly drives from London to Wales yeah. to try sort and sort of, it out yeah. and get Jimmy back on the team. And he arrives at 2 a.m. in the morning. Bursts into the chalet and says to Jimmy's mates, where is the bastard? And they say he's in the bath and he kicks open the door of the bathroom and he's about to yell at him and then he doesn't say anything because he's stunned because he looks at Jimmy and he says, Jimmy, what the hell are you doing? And Jimmy says, oh, hello, Henry. I'm rowing to Tasmania. And he was sitting in the bath. He's sitting in the bath with water overflowing and drowning the place, still wearing his suit and dinner suit that he played snooker in using his cue as an oar and he says to his manager Bill Cottier says I can't go to Tasmania with him so I'm setting off now otherwise I won't get there fantastic <laughs> so even his manager's going how long has he been there a while he's been, been there rowing a while, a while. it's Tasmania's yeah, far close to King Island find out. <laughs> 
because of his ability, though, White's put on the plane anyway. Yeah. So despite all the hullabaloo, right. they go, he's too good. We can't we leave him out. Spot. So he arrives in Tasmania and he's meant to get 1,500 pounds as an allowance. Yes. That's for your hotel room, your food, everything. I wouldn't give that to him in a lump sum. He's not meant to get in a lump sum, but he manages to convince Bill Cottier, the manager who doesn't already like him, oh, no. says, if you give me the money in a lump sum, I promise I won't bother you again, right? No. Just, so he gives him the entire allowance. Oh, rookie and, mistake. And he goes on a two-day gambling and drinking spree and loses the whole lot. Of course he did. As a result, he's re- forced to find places to sleep and beg for food for the rest of the Amateur World Championship. <laughs> Representing right? England. Representing England. He's he on the street he's begging on the street. for food. Please, sir, can I have some more? He gets to the final. He keeps winning money, though, because he loves gambling yeah. as well. So he goes to the horses. He goes to the trots in Tasmania and loses all his money on the trots. Who knows? He's just rocked up to Tasmania. He doesn't know any of these horses, right? Yeah. But he can still win money playing snooker and hustling for sure. snooker. So he, he can eat fire He's up. getting by. And he's got a lot of mates because he's a fun guy to hang out sure. with, right? He gets to the final despite not having a home <laughs> and he's so comfortable that he's going to win the next day that he throws a celebration party the night before. <laughs> <laughs> so he celebrates the victory the Fantastic. night before. He's up to 4 a.m. Yeah. His next day has to play. He's got a terrible hangover. His hands are shaking and he's losing. His hands are shaking. <laughs> there aren't many things you need in this game. No. <laughs> a shakeless hand. So he's losing and it's yeah. like not going well. A friend spots the problem and sneaks over to him in a break and goes, here, take this, and gives him a large southern comfort and lemonade oh and says, drink this, it'll bring you around. You know what? It did, didn't it? It did. He wins the rest <laughs> of it 10-1. He's the youngest ever world amateur championship at 18. That is unbelievable. Right? Well played, sir. He said at the end of it, I'd come to Tasmania, caused chaos, been constantly on the piss, scrounged a hotel room, begged and borrowed from everyone, <laughs> not been to bed before 4am and I'd still won the tournament. <laughs> so he goes back to England. He's 18 and Maureen tells him that she's pregnant. Okay. She's 19. He's 18. They've been married a year. He was thrilled. Thrilled. But he's not there for the birth. No one was in those days, though, were they? He'd gone to the Brighton races with some mates. He knew the due date was getting near, but he didn't think too much of it. (laughs) (laughs) So halfway through his bender, he stops and rings the hotel from a payphone at the races. Says, oh, how's it all going in there? (laughs) And they say, oh, Mr. White, Maureen's been asking for you. She's in labour. And he finally gets there and the baby's been born. Now, this will be shocking to some of our younger listeners, but to be honest, that wasn't no, unusual no. for Lace the time. didn't used to go that often. But also, Jimmy's just not around anyway. So you could, it's a combination of the 80s social values and it's also just Jimmy being a loose unit. A friend of mine who used to live in the country, yeah. Australia, during this time, and not only were the men not there for the birth yeah, more than yeah. often, what they do is call them. And then they would come once it was all over. Yeah. And then behind the glass, they would hold up a baby and, and just show it. And would go, great. But because the man, the husband was usually drunk, they used to use what they called a display baby, which was, <laughs> which was this is true, which was usually the best looking baby in the ward. So drunk husband comes up, looks through the glass, they hold up said baby, he gives it two thumbs up and goes back to the pub. <laughs> That was how it was done. They just grabbed whatever baby they had on hand. Whatever, no, the, the good-looking one. They just in a little bundle. Look at that, oh, beauty. So there you go. Yeah, it was. It's totally different yeah. now. But anyway, he's a loose unit anyway as well. So you got that on top. So he then shows up and he gets back in Marine's good books because she's just thrilled they've got a baby. Is the baby playing pool already? How, the how baby's old got before the. Well, do you know what he does? He and Mar- they're, they're so thrilled. And Marine's like, how great is this? And he's yes. sitting there with his newborn baby. And then he gets back in her good books. And then he goes on the piss for a couple of days straight after yeah. and doesn't see the baby for the next few days. He and Marine have this tumultuous relationship. So basically, Jimmy's never around. Yes. Often on benders, often off playing snooker. Her daughter and his daughter, yeah. her, their eldest, says, they have five kids, says, mum gave as good as Jimmy. They were both terrible. True. She never cooked. Yeah. Didn't was wherever what restaurant either of them was at that night. Yeah. They both lived a rock style life club. She says you can sort of put Maureen as the one stuck at home with the kids, but she wasn't really doing that either because nah. there's so much money coming in. They'd argue all the time. They'd separate, get back together, have another baby. <laughs> like they couldn't get their hands off each other. So it was this. Yeah, I get it. It was passionate and combustible, yeah, yeah. right? But there's no hint I could find of anything bad happening except yeah. for 
It was a they volatile. Were, it was a volatile, crazy. Yes. They love, and they still get along well. Yeah, okay. So, for example, one time, Jimmy has a mate, Con stay. Con's on crutches. He's done an injury to one of his legs. So he says, come stay with us. Ten days in, Marines had enough of Con because Con's just drunk the whole time. And because Con's there, Jimmy's drunk the whole time. Kids, they're up partying Con's probably all there night. Jimmy. Yeah, yeah, they're partying all the time. She says to Jimmy, I've not been to bed properly for a week. Lauren is tired. That's their daughter all the time. And you and Con are playing up. Either he goes or I go. Jimmy says, that's all right. We'll go. And he and Con leave. <laughs> Option three. He says to Marine, don't wait up. He staggers out the front door. And for the next month, they stay in hotel rooms around London, drinking all over the West End every night and going to as many nightclubs that would let an alcoholic on crutches in. And they just don't go home to Marine uh, until a- Con's off his crutches. And, and then goes. Jimmy goes, all right. We're done. I've cured you. I'm home. So that's what Jimmy's like, okay. right? He turns pro, and by this point, he gets to the point where it's big money. He's making like two hundred fifty thousand pounds a year on tournaments, and even more sometimes. Plus, he's hustling. Plus, he's doing exhibitions yeah. where you get paid. So, money is no problem, and he's determined to enjoy every bit of this money that he's bringing in. He'd head to a place called the Hippodrome, which is a nightclub in uh, London. Famous. And he was such a regular that the owner, Peter Stringfellow, this is all famous. very famous. But yeah. yeah. Would sell him champagne at cost price. Because <laughs> he wow. drank so much there. It was like, <laughs> you're buying in volume. <laughs> right? He had a Ferrari with a personalized number plate, Q, C U E, as in well QQ, 13OY, which looks like boy. So it sort of said Q boy on his Ferrari. So Jimmy's like, he's you know, he's like dream. 19, 20 at this point, yeah. too. It's not like he's, uh, you know, Ends up having four daughters at home. Yes. He's still out like this the whole time. He meets a guy called Alex Higgins, who's a very famous snooker player. Right. Is the generation before him, but is the wild man that Jimmy is as well, right? Gotcha. So they get along like a house on fire. When Jimmy was 13, he meets Higgins when he was doing an exhibition. And this is when Jimmy's coming up in the snooker world. And they become fast friends. And as he gets older, they hang out more. Because yep. they both love gambling, drinking, snooker. And you got to remember, Alex Higgins drank regularly with Oliver Reed, the actor who is famous for drinking binges, and Keith Moon, the drummer of The Who. So this is who Alex Higgins drinks with. Jimmy's like 19 when he's 18, 19. He starts hanging around with Alex Higgins because they're both playing professional. Higgins is the world champion, so the professional world champion. Jimmy's the amateur world champion, but now it's turned professional. They're hanging around doing stuff, and they get along like a house on fire because they both just love the pub, the drink, and whatever, right? So you can imagine. So once they decide to go on a tour together, because you can make a lot of money playing exhibitions, yeah. You can make a lot of money doing Keith this. Moon's like, not there. So, Keith Moon's, I think really Keith Moon's not Keith with Moon us anymore. No, he's, I think he's, so Higgins is the world champion. Promo says, bring the world champion trophy with you. And people at pubs will love to see it and pose with it and all that. So it goes, all right. And then they'd show up at a pub or a snooker hall. Alex Higgins, uh, Jimmy White playing each other. And then you get to see the trophy and everything. So, so punters love it. Huge tour. So they're touring. They're driving around in. They've got sort of a tour bus. And the final night, or one of the final nights, the promoter does a runner with all the money. Unbelievable. It's, it's, not, it's dodgy, a dodgy Bob stuff. It's like, yeah, dodgy Bob was at least did what he said. There's an Irish guy who's driven them around in the tour van who's been paid by the promoter to drive them around. And he suddenly realised he's not getting paid because the promoter's done a runner either. So Alex bangs on the door of the tour van and says, can I get the trophy back? And this guy goes, no way. You guys have to pay me then. The promoter's run off. I've driven you guys for weeks. He's holding hostage. I'm holding hostage the World Championship trophy. So Higgins is banging on the door. They're in the um, parking lot of a pub, funnily enough. And Higgins is banging on the door saying, open this door now, I want my trophy. And the driver's saying, oh, you'll get your trophy when I get paid for this tour. Higgins starts getting redder and redder, going, open up this instant. And he says, I'll have you shot. And screaming and carrying (laughs) on. Eventually news gets to the local police force that Alex Higgins, the world snooker champion, who is famous at this point, you got to remember. Yes. And on the BBC every week, you know, Absolutely. on front, paper, front of papers, is having a meltdown in the pub. Threatening to kill an Irishman. Threatening to kill someone. A police officer shows up and the constable straight away reckons Higgins and says, calm down, man, what's wrong? And he explains it. So he turns to the Irish driver and goes, open this door in the name of the law. <laughs> I demand you give Mr. Higgins his trophy back. 
and the driver just yeah. pretends he can't hear, right? So even the cops can't budge him. Jimmy decides there's one thing for this. He says to Higgins, let's go in the bar and have a drink. <laughs> Perfect. So they can see out the window the bus. So it's a standoff. The driver's in the bus. Higgins. They'll know if he leaves. Higgins and White are watching and the policeman's trying to, is standing there. It's like a there. stakeout. Yeah, and the, but the, while the policeman tries to negotiate with the driver. So they're just watching out the window. Eventually, the police officer comes in and goes, a small drink is needed, I think. So the police officer sits down and has, yeah, a, sits has a drink with them. So they're watching this bus. This Irish guy's not yeah. getting out. They're all having a drink. He says, before long, one pipe became two. And the fence, so even the policemen, all three of them are drinking heavily. The police officer says, I'll call my sergeant down. Maybe that'll help. So they call his <laughs> sergeant down. He joins to see it, tries with the driver. The driver's not interested. So the sergeant sits there's, down and has a drink with them. There's for it. So suddenly there's two coppers and yeah. these guys drinking. Next thing, the chief constable of the whole area shows up. And he comes in and has a drink so with them. Sensible option. So he starts calling all the police cars in the area to come and arrive with their lights on to try and scare the driver. Yeah. So there's suddenly this car park's full of police officers with lights and sirens. But these guys are having a drink. But they all keep coming in and drinking <laughs> with them, right? So it's half the police force drinking with the world champion I going, this it. is great, watching these Irishmen not get out who won't bug. Eventually, <laughs> Higgins is going nuts, so they're plying him with Guinness after Guinness, right? <laughs> Finally... The local priest comes down, <laughs> fresh from Sunday mass, and says, "He will listen to me. I'm a man of the cloth, and he's In the an Irish. He's an Irishman." He says, "But before I go talk to him, I think a drop of Guinness is needed <laughs> to keep my voice nice and strong." So there they are, the chief constable, the world snooker championship, several police. A priest, all just standing there watching this Irishman. Like suddenly, the press show up. The oh. national media get word of well, this. they hate a drink. And they all show up. <laughs> and so they say, Alex Higgins, can we have a quick word? Because he's the world championship. And Higgins is like not happy. So he gets on television and he says, ladies and gentlemen, in 1966, a dog found the World Cup trophy. That's that famous story of the football World Cup went missing and a yes. dog found it. And this is him saying this to police. In 1982, a dog has nicked the world championship <laughs> trophy. The caravan owner watching all this decides that he'll send a message that he can stay in there a long time by starting to fry some bacon, letting them know that he's got enough food in the caravan to stay, like in the virtual bus to stay there for weeks. <laughs> and so Higgins finally goes, okay, you win. How much do you need to open this door? He says, ah, oh, Mr. Higgins, you're a real gent. I, <laughs> I knew you'd see sense in the end. I need 250 pounds and I do take checks. So he gets his checkbook out and signs it. That is a very suitable finish <laughs> to the whole That's thing. A win -win. And he doesn't cancel the check because he kind of admires he the pig-headedness of the Irish guy. He stuck it out. Then there's another one in Dublin, and there's a business and an Irish guy called Warren Lasher, and he's super rich. And he's organized the tournament. Because these guys are rock stars. He's very keen to be friends with Jimmy and win Jimmy over sure. when Jimmy rocks up. So he says, I've booked you into the Gresham Hotel. It's one of Ireland's best, which it is. And he says, I've booked you into the Elizabeth Taylor Suite. You'll enjoy it. And it's this amazing one. It's got its own bar, three bedrooms, a massive bathroom, and its own butler. Pardon me, Your Majesty. So Jimmy's like going, this is amazing. Yeah. Warren says, the businessman says, what's your favorite champagne, Jimmy? And he says, uh, Dom Perignon, I suppose. And he says, okay. And he rings down a reception. Yes, yes, I'd like 25 bottles of Dom Perignon to Mr. White's room every day. At cost. <laughs> every day. 24 every bottles day. every day. So they just, there's no problem. Alex Higgins shows up the next day at the hotel yes. and says, I'd like to check into my usual suite. And they say, sorry, Mr. Higgins, Mr. White's already booked into that. And Higgins oh. is like, I'm the world champion. How is Jimmy White? Is this young guy He's still trouble. So he says, that's no trouble. I'll just stay in his bathroom. <laughs> so that's what he did. He slept in the bathroom for three nights in the bath, yeah. right? Because they're partying the whole time anyway. Did he anyway. rowing to Tasmania <laughs> at any stage? After three days, Higgins moves down to the suite below, but they still party in Jimmy's one. So it's him and Higgins. They sit at the bar in his suite and try and drink it all. They're eating steak, oysters, lobsters, champagne. It's all on the rich yep. guy, right? It got around Dublin that the Gresham Hotel was hosting the party of the century. So word gets around that they're yes. having this, like, all they could know. Phil Linant, 
the lead singer of Thin Lizzy. Those boys are back here, all that. Yes, I've been to a pub in Dublin where there's a statue of him. Yeah, out the front. huge star. Phil, come along as soon as you can. I've got all the booze you can drink up here. Line it, the Thin Lizzy singer. He says, "Ah, oh, Jimmy, yes, I've heard about it. I'll be there tonight." So words got round that this party is going on, right? Fantastic. They then find out UB40 <laughs> <laughs> around the corner. So UB40 come too. So they're having a party. It's Keith UB- Moon turns up. I'm going to lose <laughs> my mind. It's Thin Lizzy, UB40. Jimmy White, you know, all these people drinking and it goes on for 17 days nonstop, <laughs> right? There's cocaine, there's everything to keep them going. Nightclub girls show up, croupiers, hostesses, the good and the bad of Dublin, he says, show up and it's right. going on for 17 days. They would occasionally pop out to play snooker for the exhibition. <laughs> we'll be back in a sec. We'll be back in a sec, right? Order something. All this time, Marine's trying to find out where Jimmy is and is ringing. And he'd ring and say, look, I'm sorry, I am coming home in a bit. And she'd say, no, you're not. And I'm sick of it to hang up on him. And he's going, well, I can't stay forever. What a nag. Seven-day yeah, party. And they're getting 24 <laughs> bottles of Dom Perignon yeah. every day delivered. Everything's free. The businessman, Warren, who's paying for all this, yeah. he's been coming to a lot of the parties, obviously, because that's the fun of paying yeah. for all this. At one point, Warren's wife comes to the hotel, the businessman's wife, pulls Jimmy aside and says that, her husband's been carted off to a mental hospital after having a breakdown. Because <laughs> he's tried to keep up with their party and it's broken him, right? He's in the bath rowing to yeah. the bath. So, like, so Jimmy thinks, oh, this party's come to an end. Okay, we're done here. Yeah. Wait a check, please. So she says to him, the wife says, now then, Mr. White, you've been drinking all this champagne, haven't you? And he said, yeah, well, I have. Um, I'm sorry to hear about your husband. And she says, these 24 bottles a day have to stop. And he's like, it's been a good run. And she says, now, now, I don't want you to think we're not generous. So you can still stay at the Gresham and I'm halving your Dom Perignon to just 12 <laughs> bottles a day. Is that good enough for you? <laughs> <laughs> it's been halved. What kind the of Crom William regime is this? <laughs> <laughs> this is the bar's still open, like open bar, all the food's all been right paid then. for. So yeah, yeah. Alex has to move back into his bathtub. <laughs> In the end, the thing that brings this to a halt is Jimmy gets alcohol poisoning. <laughs> so he decides it's time to go home. Okay. Phil's there from Thin Lindsay. They're all there. He says, I'm off, lads. i got to go. Yeah. And they go, all right, see you later. So he leaves them all there drinking and leaves. And he makes his way to Dublin Airport. He flies to Gatwick, gets in a cab, arrives at home ready to make peace with Marine. A so warm he, welcome? He knocks on the door. He's ready to cop it, right? The second he op- she opens the door, he knows that's huge trouble. Yeah. Instantly kicks off in a fight. He looks at it and just goes, oh, turns around, goes back to the cab driver, take me to Gatwick. <laughs> Two hours later, he's flown back to Ireland and he's back at the Gresham. <laughs> right? Two hours later. So he's gone all the- he's gone all the way back to London. And he's come back in. Copped a spray. Yeah. He goes into the lobby and goes up to reception and he says, can I check into the Elizabeth Taylor suite, please? And the girl behind reception says, you could do, but you never checked out in the first place. (laughs) 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 So he goes, oh, okay. He goes up the lift and walks into the suite and Phil Lynette, the lead singer of Thin Lizzy, goes, I thought you'd gone home. And he said, yeah, never mind that. Now who wants a glass of Dom Perignon? This is the life. Unbelievable. So another time he goes out with Higgins, it's in Surrey, and they just take off in the morning and they drive around and they stop in every pub in Surrey. And by the end of the night, they're so gone that they go, we better get a cab home. Yeah. So he calls a cab. Sensible. Can I get a cab? And the bartender says, Jimmy, mate, you ain't a cab. This isn't London. Like, there's yeah. no cabs this time of night. So Jimmy decides to drive. It's pouring with rain. He's the least drunk. There's another guy in with them and Alex Higgins. Higgins is the most drunk. Yeah. Right? Come to a corner and Jimmy's gone too fast. He loses it and they crash into a brick wall, part of a country estate, and Alex Higgins has sailed out. He's not wearing a seatbelt and sails out the windscreen and lands on the bonnet facing Jimmy. Okay. And Jimmy's like, I've killed Higgins. I've killed him. And as he looks at him and the windscreen's gone, the rain's pouring, Higgins jumps up without a scratch on him and does a jig and goes, I'm fine, I'm fine. I've got nine lives, babes, nine lives. And there's a get in the car, mate, and he's like just doing a jig on the bonnet. Yeah. 
Higgins says, I used to be a jockey, so I know how to fall. I was in full control at all times. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. No, you weren't. <laughs> the car's a wreck. Sure. Higgins is back in and they're driving home. They've got two more miles to go home. It's carnage all the way. The windscreen wipers are all bent and they're hitting Higgins in the face because <laughs> there's no windscreen. And he's laughing going, I've been saved. I've been saved. There must be a reason. It's a miracle. Let's go for a drink, babes. Let's go for a drink. And they're like, I think we've, you know. Jimmy White gets to his house, opens the electronic garage door, floors the engine to go in, and the engine falls out the bottom of the car. Perfect. Higgins is going, this is the best. There's steams everywhere, petrol all over it. It's completely wrecked. Higgins is going, are we going for a drink? Where are we going for a drink? I need to celebrate my new life. <laughs> a fresh start. Jimmy then realises that he's left the windscreen back there and it's got the tax disc, the registration they have, yes. with his address and everything on it. So he's rigging around finding a cab mate yeah. going, can you drive up there and get it for me? So the cabbie mate drives up, gets it, and he gets away with the whole thing. Correct. So this is what their life is about. In 1984, he's at the World Championship and Jimmy makes the final. And he plays a guy called Steve Davis. And Steve Davis is this clean living guy, one of the great sneaker players. Jimmy's this wild one. Everyone is barracking for Jimmy, but Jimmy loses to Steve in the World Championship. His fame, though, now, because he came running up, everyone's favorite and most famous snooker yep. player, right? This wild kid who's exciting and everything. The, his fame's now getting into really weird situations. So when Jimmy was growing up, late in his teenage lives, his mum gets mugged and her handbag's taken. It got round town that this had happened and a South London gangster heard about it and thought that's not okay. Not Jimmy White's one of the great, because he mixes in those circles. Not on my watch. Next thing is the doorbell rings at his mum's house and she opens the door and her handbag's there on the step with everything back in it. Fantastic. He doesn't say which, who the gangster is, Jimmy, even in his yes. autobiography still this day. But anyway, so a few years later, the gangster gets in touch with Jimmy and says, oh, I'd love a favour, meaning I'm this cashing is, in on the favour. This favor, is what always you? happens. He said, oh, yeah, what is it? Do you want me to do a charity gig or something? He said, no, I want you to visit someone in prison. And he says, oh, okay, is there one of your mates? He says, yeah, my mate's called Ronnie. Ronnie Cray. That's <laughs> in the Cray Brothers. One of the Cray twins. Biggest gangsters of the ageism. Ronnie's in Parkhurst Prison on the Isle of Wight. So Jimmy thinks, well, I can't really say no. And Jimmy's a huge star, right? So, yeah, but he goes, oh. so they book him in for a visit and there's all this paperwork to get in to see Ronnie Cray sure. where you have to do it with the authority. So it's a bit of a, for the gangster, it's a bit of a pain in the ass, but he's doing it for Ronnie. Yeah. But Jimmy's too pissed to go. They can't find him. So they're not happy with him, right? So they book him in again. Go, okay. Jimmy. Yeah. You got to go. And he's like, okay, next time he's too pissed, they can't find him. And he just forgets it's on, right? Yeah, gotcha. So then one morning is that he happens to be at home and Maureen says, there's two big guys downstairs wanting to talk to you. And he goes down and they're these huge guys, like massive. And he says, come with us, Jimmy. You've got no choice today, mate. They put him in his big Mercedes and they drive him <laughs> to the ferry at Southampton. He gets on, he tries to chat to them, but they don't talk to him. Yeah. And he's got a raging hangover, of course, and they arrive at the Isle of Wight prison and he goes through security and he's taken in this wide open public space and there's Ronnie Cray. Unbelievable. And he said, Ronnie's got full silver service in there. He's in a suit and tie and there's just one guard keeping an eye on him. <laughs> he said, Ronnie's the, like doesn't have handcuffs or anything. There's no security really to note. Ronnie just runs the prison sure. in a way. Ronnie comes up and gives him a huge hug and gives him a little doll for his daughter as a present. He's a complete gentleman and he just wants to talk snooker. So they talk snooker for two hours straight. That's surreal. Yeah, and Ronnie Cray's like, you know, one of the most violent men in sure. history just like chatting away with him. And they're sipping tea out of china cups and picking up finger sandwiches. <laughs> he says the food was better than at most hotels he goes to. And he says... Ronnie was just a massive fan, just yeah. loved snooker and all this. We'll have a chat. Yeah. Spend some quality time. They didn't talk about his crimes at all or anything. They just totally taught snooker. And then the next thing, two hours are up and he's back off and the two massive blokes still don't say a word to him. <laughs> what <laughs> so, a life. So by this point, he's starting to make a lot of cocaine. Gets up to 10,000 pounds a month on cocaine. Okay. He also tries crack and for three months goes into this spiral, mm. manages to get off it. But the cocaine is the bit that, Really gets it because he figures out I can drink all night, 
have some cocaine. It and feels like going. he sobered him up and then he goes again. And so he's doing this all Would the time. Who would have thought that would be a tough drug to play billiards on? He winds down ahead of tournaments, but it, it, he reckons it, it's cost him 10 t- World Cup tournaments. Yeah. Now, some say, come on, but he was that good that you'll wonder. Yeah. He even buys a nightclub. At this point, it's called Whirlwinds in Earl's Court. He spends £200,000 on doing it up. It's got a big bar and everything, VIP and stuff. He gets a sign done that says Whirlwinds with lights and everything. That costs twenty grand, yeah. right? On the opening night, he and Maureen show up. TV news crews are there. It gets all this coverage until he leaves at 3 in the morning. The police then raid it and find cocaine everywhere. <laughs> And they closed the business down. It's been in business eight hours. (laughs) And with that, it's goodbye to Whirlwinds. He has to shut it down. What happened to the cops? (laughs) They just went, no. Normally there, you know. Normally there'd be it on it. Dirty pool. The side gets taken down to be moved and it falls off the truck and breaks apart. He goes, well, that's pretty much it. In 1988, Jimmy's at the top of his game in many ways. He meets a guy called Roddy Wood as Rolling Stones. Rolling Stones, Roddy Wood. They meet at a Christmas school play. <laughs> well, that was bound to happen. <laughs> so Jimmy's at the back of his daughter's Christmas school play and he's trying to set up the video recorder, which he can't use. And he stood at the back guy going, bloody hell, what is this? He turns around and there's Ronnie also struggling with his camera because his daughter's at the same school, right? Okay. So they give each other a nod and they have a bit of a chat and they go, oh, we kind of like each other. So then they agree to go do something one day and they're going to go pick up some Christmas presents for their wives. But that idea goes out the window and they go on a three-day bender, <laughs> right? It's either or. But he realized, they both realised they've got a mate who lives around the corner from them and likes the exact same stuff. Ronnie is a huge snooker fan. Okay. Massive. Ronnie's got a place in Kildare in Ireland and it's in the middle of nowhere with all these horses. It's got its own music studio. It's got its own pub in the house. Yeah. And <laughs> people in the area are allowed to just like local farmers and policemen are like to just pop around. Like and pour themselves a Guinness and sit in the pub. Oh, so that's how Ronnie operates, right? On New Year's Eve, one time, they all get given these magic mushrooms that turn the New Year's Eve session into New Year's Day session. Yes. And he said it's just him and Ronnie drinking and playing snooker. And one, and Ronnie goes, wait here, I'll be back in a second. He goes out and comes back in 15 minutes later with a horse who's <laughs> inside in the snooker room. Are they all yeah. mushrooms? Yeah, they're all mushrooms. This is fantastic. And so Jimmy goes, oh, we're going to get trampled by this horse. He goes, don't worry, Jimmy, i got it under control. And he's like, you've been on magic mushrooms all night. He says, no, the horse is good as gold. So it's just him and Ronnie Wood playing snooker while a horse stood there. <laughs> Another time he's at Ronnie Wood's house for Ronnie's birthday in Wimbledon. They're at his house in Wimbledon. It's a lovely nice. It's all very respectful apparently yes. until Jimmy does a bunch of lines. I think they're all doing lines. Yeah. The food at this dinner party sushi. This is the 80s where sushi suddenly the sure. thing. Yes. And it's really expensive sushi, of course. Jimmy's like so drunk, he sits there and he decides he doesn't want to eat sushi. So he starts to try and cook the sushi with his cigarette lighter. <laughs> Everyone else is furious and, J- and Ronnie thinks it's the funniest thing he's ever seen. One night... Ronnie O'Sullivan, who's now the 90s into the 2000s. So what Alex Higgins was yes. to Jimmy White, Ronnie O'Sullivan is, the man. comes up behind Jimmy, but they're very similar. So one night, Ronnie O'Sullivan, Jimmy White, Ronnie Wood and Keith Richards. Oh, stop it. I love these stories. Are all sitting drinking at Ronnie Wood's house. Yeah. And Keith Richards and Ronnie Wood are just playing guitar together and then they start to show off to each other and yeah. to... Ronnie O'Sullivan and, and to Jimmy, they start going, watch this. It's and then, a bit of a jam. And it becomes competitive and they start trying to out-duel each other. And for two hours they play Rolling Stones songs and their favourite blues songs. Unbelievable. And Ronnie O'Sullivan and Jimmy White are sitting there just going, how much money would you pay to do yes. this? Right, front row seats. So they're having a great time. So Keith finally turns and says to them, who's the best? Is it me or Ronnie? And they're just like gobsmacked going, I can't believe this. Then Ronnie Wood turns to uh, him and says to O'Sullivan and White, all right, we've done our bit. We've had our turn. It's time for you to do this. And Ronnie Wood had this beautiful pool table that yeah. Jimmy had bought him. And so they get up and play 10 games of snooker. They're the two best players pretty much in the, in world, the world at this point. And they have four century breaks and they just play oh. the they play the 10 <laughs> best chops. range of snooker, yeah, off their chops of snooker. And he said Keith and Ronnie are just sitting there laughing and love it. Like as much as they're loving them playing guitar. Why isn't this broadcast? They're loving like what they're doing because it's the best in the world doing their thing but in a relaxed, just hanging out way. Another, You know how people 
Say if I had a time machine, I'd go and watch Elvis in Hawaii. Or yeah, I'd yeah. Go and do. Imagine being you know, there that night. This is the things I would do. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I would go to Roddy Wood's house. I know to be there and watch that night. Of yeah. Entertainment. Uh, another time, Rod Stewart invites them to the football. It's Ronnie Wood's boys, some of Jimmy's kids. They're all going, and they got to go pick Rod Stewart up. And they've hired some vans and stuff, so they pick Rod Stewart up. They're going to Ivory. Yeah. And Ronnie Wood says, "Hey, we're in Swiss Cottage. Peter Cook lives around here. Let's go pick him up." Oh, now, for those that don't uh, know, Peter Cook, one of the great uh, comedians, royalty, royalty yeah, Dudley Moore and him Dudley were Moore. one, you know, two of the great. And Peter Cook had this roguish element to him and was one of super, the just superstar funniest, right? They get on, they pull over at a pub and they ring. He liked to drink too. Yeah, he loved to drink. Out. So they ring Peter Cook at home and Ronnie Wood, so this is a Rolling Stones, Ronnie Wood going to Peter Cook, come on, it's going to be a great day out. I've got Rod Stewart here. I've got Jimmy White. We're going to go to the footy. Um, and he and so Peter Cook says, "Okay, Ronnie, I should be the strange-looking gentleman standing outside the red pillar box with the pink suit on." So they drive around to his house, and standing outside the red pillar box is Peter Cook in a pink suit. <laughs> They're going to the footy, the eighties Premier yeah, League, right? Yeah. They drive down and they pick a Peter Hood. He says, "Afternoon, gentlemen, let's be gone to the football." So they go to Highbury and they get ushered in because you know, sure. like Rod Stewart, Peter yeah. Cook, and everything. During the match. Peter Cook just turns his back on the match and starts chatting to the fans. Yeah. So in the middle of the match, about 100 fans are just all stop watching the football completely. Of course. And then they go out and have a huge blinder. Peter Cook's just regaling the whole. You got Rod Stewart, it's Ronnie Wood. Like, so. I'm so jealous. He stays friends to this day with Ronnie Wood and the Rolling Stones played Jimmy's 50th birthday. <laughs> right. All this time, I the love it. most famous bit of this is while he's going through all of this, beat him one world championship and he lost. lost. He then plays in the world championship final in 1990, 1991, 1992, 1993, and 1994, which is astounding. No one's yes. ever done that. He loses all of them. Five in a row. So he's played six world championships. He loses all What's six. What's going wrong? He would say that prepping by taking enormous amounts of cocaine and drinking, he played a guy, four of those losses were a guy called Stephen Hendry, one of the greatest yes. super players of all time. Hendry was this kept to himself, nice yeah. guy, but just yeah. straight, seriously. very serious. So that's really, I mean, you got to remember, Jimmy won 20 other major tournaments. He won the Masters. He only lost the last on the final frame in one of these matches. He won two of Suka's three majors, the UK Championship and the Masters. He spent 21 seasons ranked in the snooker elite top 16. Yeah. So... He did this all while being the biggest I, party and ever. If that's the cost for enjoying the lifestyle he enjoyed, he made the right call. Well, that's what and he, he said. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I thought you'd like this guy. He, he has done it. And if you could do it all again, you wouldn't change a thing. You wouldn't. Yeah, no. just for those opportunities yeah. that life throws up that no one else will ever get. Yeah. So, and still play at oh, the amazing. Top level. Exactly. He, and he's won a bunch of Masters tournaments, which is the senior yeah. tour. He wins a lot of those too. But Just um, glad he made the seniors tour. Yeah. It's, by the late 90s, he's starting to go down on the ratings. He's still a great player yeah. and he's still the most popular player. Sure. In the late 90s, his white bull terrier Splinter is dognapped and held for ransom. Oh, he's got to call the boys again, like the, the handbag. It's the first dog to ever have a colour poster on the front page of the <laughs> Times. Of the Times. Have you seen this dog? dog? on the front of the Times, not like the sun, the well, Times. Roddy Gray will get that dog That's for him. Well, he said, the next day he gets a phone call and the voice at the other end saying, I know where Splinter your dog is. <laughs> I've got your dog. Meet me at Epson Clock Tower at midnight. Come on your own. So Jimmy being Jimmy and having grown up in the world goes fine, gets the 300 pounds, goes to Epson at midnight, and a minute to midnight a white van comes screeching around the bend and comes to stop on the other side of the road. And all of a sudden this figure comes out of the shadows. Jimmy's ready and the figure says, Jimmy White? Jimmy walks up and he realises he knew him as a guy called Johnny Francombe who was a bare-knuckle boxer and a kind of a criminal. They had mutual friends. <laughs> so Johnny Francombe says, Jimmy, I didn't know it was your dog. And he said, this guy's the hardest as nails. So he's like, he wasn't really scared of me. But he said, look, I'm just getting 150 pounds to bring the dog back. I didn't yeah. kidnap it or anything. I'm just here to. Yeah. And Jimmy just goes, look, I don't really care, John. It's fine, whatever. These things happen. Because he's yeah. grown up in this world. Yeah, of like yeah, this yeah. Is He like, knows how it works. He goes, here's the 300 pounds. You just give me the dog. 
Johnny goes, no worries. They give him the dog, gives his signs to his mates, open the back door of the van and the dog jumps out and he's suddenly got splinter and Johnny says, all right, see you later. And the van drives off. The dog tries to jump back in the van. <laughs> it's like just rescued this dog and the dog doesn't. The dog goes, I want to go with the kidnappers. In 1995, he gets testicular cancer, which he recovers from. At this point, he's separated from Marine. They're still close mates though and hang out. She helps him get through testicular cancer and then not long after that, one night they're having a few wines, they're separated and uh, she gets pregnant and they have a son, Tommy Tiger. Oh, he says it proved that my t- I'd recovered from testicular cancer. I'm back. In 1996 though, his brother Martin dies finally of lung cancer. He's 53 years old. Jimmy is devastated. He said, we're so sad. We've been drinking at the pub all night before the funeral, the night before, and the bill came to... 4,600 pounds. It's a proper drink. It's sort of like yeah, a pre-wake. I get it. He said, we're all crying and I told my sister, we're going to go get Martin. His brother's dead. Yes. He says, we're going to go get him. So they go to the undertaker's and he kicks the door in and steals the body in his suit. His brother's there in his suit and they get it. He calls his driver and takes his brother to the pub and they sit for five hours drinking and smoking and laughing and crying with his dead brother there because he goes, it just wasn't time to let him go. The driver works out that the brother's dead and goes, I don't want any part of this and nicks off. So finally they say they have to get the body back to the undertakers. So they call a taxi and on the way the driver looked in the mirror and said, he don't look too well. This keeps coming. <laughs> so he gets the, puts the body back, then the police come because someone figures out they and they go up to him and go, because they knew he was very upset in the funerals that day. Yes. The police say, Jimmy, you didn't take the body from the undertakers last night, did you? Yeah. And he said, uh, and he realised they were giving him an out. Yeah. And he said, no, I didn't. They go, we thought so. Brilliant. So the police load it on. Brilliant. That's how business should be done. Yeah. In 1996, he goes bankrupt because he doesn't pay inland revenue taxes. Okay, yeah. But, of course, he goes bankrupt. He can always make money again through – he just plays tournaments and exhibitions and everything, but it just shows him. Then the same year, the phone rings. It says, Mr. White, it's the news of the world here, which is a newspaper tabloid. We have pictures of you doing coke with a girl and we want to comment from you. This will be featured in the newspapers on Sunday. Jimmy's like going, oh my God, because up to this point, while he's partying, it's gotten away with it, right? And he thinks, I don't think they actually do have a photo. I reckon someone's just telling them this stuff. And he tries to figure out who he is because he was taking coke and seeing this girl at the time because it's in one of him and Maureen's breaks. And I think even when he was with Maureen, he didn't exactly hold back, right? (laughs) Very loose. So he works out that it's this guy is his driver. He works out who knows the details of what the news of the world are putting to. So angry right now. So he reads the driver and he goes, I've got to find this out. It's a Friday afternoon, right? Because the newspapers is going to be printed on Sunday. So mm. the newspapers leave it at the last minute to spring it on him. So he's running around London trying to find this bloke, get to the bottom of it. He calls every mate he knew, called in every favour, couldn't find him. But then he suddenly gets a phone call from a friend of his, Kevin Kelly in Jersey. He says, Jimmy, your mate is in my club. This guy's been shooting his mouth off about how much he knows Jimmy. Okay. So the News of the World's given him 500 pounds to go and hide in Jersey to get away. Yes. So Jimmy couldn't find him. In the meantime, Jimmy's found out that this guy, his driver, is wanted by the police because he sold a pub in Croydon called The Two Brewers to an old woman. The problem was that he never owned the pub. (laughs) (laughs) So the police are after him. He's a guy like... So he says to Kevin, who owns the club, Kev, you've got to keep him in the club and phone the police. Kevin calls the police, doesn't tell the driver, says the driver, hey, here's another free drink. Yeah. Police come and arrest him. And the minute that happens, Jimmy rings the news of the world and says, you can't run a story based on the rumours of a fugitive and thief. This is what's just happened. And the paper has no choice but to pull the story. He gets my over. Well done. In 97, 98, he gets a letter that says he's going to receive an MBE for services to snooker. <laughs> so an honour. should. It's rumoured that White was the Queen Mother's favourite player. The Queen's a true professional. He comes up and he gets told he's like taken some stuff. So he's meeting the Queen and they say you have to bow and all this. And he can't remember when he's got to bow. 
So he walks towards the queen. He's got to walk up and get there. He bows, keeps bowing every few steps, which you're not meant to do. So the queen's just looking at him and going, what are you doing? <laughs> anyway, he gets in front of the queen and she says, Jimmy, this is the queen, Jimmy, please tell me all about this. Do tell me why they put the snooker highlights on so late. <laughs> and he says, I know, ma'am. My dad misses Mosa as well. It's far too late for him too. And then she, he's ushered like, stop talking to her. And he walks away continuing to bow. And everyone just goes, <laughs> what is going on? In 2005 at the Masters, he decides to change his name by deed poll from Jimmy White as part of a sponsorship deal with HP Source. To Jimmy Brown. <laughs> and he's out of debt. <laughs> so this is making money. 2008, him and Marie are fighting again. Uh, They're off and on. That's sad. And in the middle of it, they both start laughing and go, why do we keep doing this? Like, Let's just get divorced. Go, it's a yeah, love fine. affair. Well, but they go, let's just get, so they get divorced. Yeah, They're okay. still apparently very close. 2009 does I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here, the UK version, with like people like Jordan, the you know the page three model, Sam Fox. watching this, yeah. He comes third. The only person he didn't like on it was Aussie Joe Bugner, the boxer. He says it's too aggressive. <laughs> to finalise this all off, in 2018, White begins a new relationship with a beauty queen uh, whose name is Jade. She's 23 years his junior. He's 56 when they meet. She was 32. She was a darts and pool girl, like, you know, yes. walked them out. And they meet and he says that his nights out have been swapped for pampered nights in. He says they've changed completely and he's now happily still with her. He still likes to tear it up occasionally but he's yeah. much better. He said he's been sober for pretty much six years. Sometimes he goes to Alcohol Anonymous and still drinks so he just says I can have a few drinks. <laughs> he says I have to look back at what I used to get up to with the drinking and the drugs and madness and it scares the life out of me what I used to do but part of this stuff is to relive that a little bit. He said, there's been a few apologies I've had to put out there to people. He said, I think I've burnt through $2 million in gambling. When people are trying to psychoanalyze me, he says, there was nothing tortured about it. I just liked a nightclub, a joint, a screwdriver, and a gamble. It's as clear cut as that. He has no regrets. He goes, I just liked having fun. What a story. And I'm so glad that's a happy ever after. I was convinced this was going to come to grief. Yeah. Because... It normally does. Yeah. To have gone, sailed that close to the sun and not get burned. Yeah. That's the ideal. Oh. That is living the best life you can. Yeah. And live to tell the story and be out the back end. That 11-year-old boy I'm still <laughs> imagining. Yeah. Scarfing out the window, getting mornings off from school. <laughs> Look at me now, ma. That is a fantastic story and that makes me smile. I, <laughs> that is is up there with my favourites of all time. Time to find a snooker hall. I'm going to head down there right now. <laughs> Thank you once again, Titus O'Reilly. If you love Sports Bazaar, why wouldn't you want to sign up to Bazaar Plus, our membership program, for even more episodes? Just go to the link in the show notes to sign up. Cheers. <laughs>